for joining me. Bit of a late start tonight. Had some technical difficulties, but that's okay. The show must go on, as they say. I uh, hope you all had a good weekend. I know I did. Uh, we went up into the mountains and went snowmobiling and hiking around and had a good time on Friday and Saturday. And, you know, I got to say that even if, even if all I did was just kick rocks all of Friday and all of Saturday, that's all I did. And today, I still got to have that amazing football game. It would still be a great weekend, right? Because the Chiefs won. We beat the Tennessee Titans going to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 54, for the first time in 50 years. The Chiefs are going to have a Super Bowl appearance. It's pretty cool. It was a great game. They did the same thing that they did against, uh, man, who did we play? Oh, Houston. Houston uh, last week where it's like, oh, let's get them let him score a whole bunch of points on us, and then we'll start playing football. So my blood pressure was definitely uh, pretty high for the beginning of the game, and then even at the end, it was like, all right, we're going to close this thing out. But anyway, but it was an amazing football game. It was awesome to watch. So it just means that February is going to be bonkers, all right? So listen to the first week in February. So February 2nd, Super Bowl 54, the Chiefs are going to be playing the San Francisco 49ers. The Niners whooped up on Green Bay Packers. Uh, they, it was a really high-scoring game there as well, so that should be a really good game. So that's on February 2nd. The next day, February 3rd, is the Iowa caucuses, which will tell us a lot about kind of where the Democrats are right now in their nomination process. So that's going to be a big deal. And then the day after that, on February 4th, is the State of the Union, which President Trump will be giving while in the middle of an impeachment trial in the Senate. So that will be interesting to watch to say the least and then just a few days after that is the eighth democrat debate on february 7th which is in new hampshire and it'll be just a few days before the new hampshire primary so there's a lot going on at least in the beginning of february and i was saying about this earlier i'm like okay i feel like how i feel about the caucuses and how i feel about the state of the union and the next democrat debate will be very much shaded by the results of the super bowl <laughs> on the second, because there's a good chance, like, if it, if it goes well, if we if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, I'll be like, Iowa caucuses, everyone wins, man, that was great, Iowa, you did a good job, and the State of the Union, I'll be like, oh, that was great, everything's good, very engaging, good job, yada, 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 and during the Democrat debate, a few days later, I'll be like, yeah, everyone wins, it was a great debate performance, but I mean, didn't Tom Steyer do good? Like, it'll just give me rose-colored lenses forever, but if the Chiefs lose, and they, you know, suck it up and choke, I'll, I'll just hate everything, so definitely expect there to be some of my mood <laughs> coming out, at least in the the streams that I do following the Super Bowl, so we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, and, and I guess actually February 2nd is a Sunday, so I, I'll still do my stream then, but again, we'll see how my mood is. It'll either be really giddy or it will be just the most morose thing you've ever seen. Anyway, so here's what we're going to talk about. All that to say, go Chiefs, Super Bowl 54. Let's do this thing, right? Congratulations to the Niners. Excited to see you there. Uh, anyway, so here's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to do a brief Iran update. There's kind of an interesting story out of Iran that I want to touch on. Um, and then we're going to do a brief impeachment thing. Uh, just kind of where that's at, you know, there, some big stuff happened this last week. What's going on? Whoa, that's crazy. Okay, but yeah, my screen got super blurry there for a second. Anyway, 
I didn't know if I disconnected or what. Like I said, technical difficulties tonight. It's a duct tape production. always has been. You know what you signed up for. Anyway, so we're going to talk about the impeachment, and then we're going to touch on the primaries, the debate, you know, the big Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren thing, and kind of what that tells us about uh, where the Democrats are right now and some of the bigger conflicts that are spilling out into the open. I've got some thoughts on that. And then we'll end with kind of discussing Martin Luther King Jr. and how, like, Martin Luther King Jr. Day is tomorrow. And so, you know, I want to discuss him and his legacy, probably go through his I Have a Dream speech. I have all that here. One of the things that took me so long is, I, you know, I, I usually run through what I'm going to talk about before I go live because, you know, I want to have it kind of clear in my mind. And I went through the Martin Luther King one uh, a couple times, and I just wasn't confident that I was able to articulate what I was trying to get across. So we might just read the speech and call it, call it a night at that. We'll see where I'm at and how confident I am that I can actually articulate what I'm trying to say. Uh, anyway, that's your peek behind the curtain of what's going on in my mundane mind over here. So anyway, so Iran. So here's what happens. So the House passes this war powers resolution. It's mostly symbolic, but it's restricting President Trump's military actions in Iran. He has to remove all hostile forces from Iran within 30 days. And so the House passed that, which means it goes over to the Senate. The Senate has to vote on it. But again, this is a largely symbolic thing. The other part of it is that it's not even clear whether it's legally binding or not. It's kind of one of those separation of powers questions that could kind of go either way. But again, it's largely symbolic, but the Senate will still have to vote on it. Uh, you know, and even in all the articles I read about this, all of them acknowledge like, yeah, they did this after things de-escalated. So it seems symbolic, seems kind of pointless, but you know, whatever, that's fine. Um, but here's a story to kind of, again, I want to emphasize, you know, they can pass these war powers resolution. Oh, we're, we don't want to go to war with Iran. That was one of the things they talked about in the debates is, oh, we're, we're more in danger of going to war now than ever before. And all that other stuff is, you know, kind of one of the things they talked about at the debate on this past Tuesday. Uh, but here's a, here's a story that, again, emphasizes what I've been saying, which is the U.S. doesn't want to go to war. Iran doesn't want to go to war. No one wants to go to war. Iran has bigger things to worry about. Uh, so here's a story that just from a few days ago. Quote, an Iranian international chess referee has said she's afraid to return home after state media published photographs of her apparently not wearing a hijab, as is mandatory for women under Iranian law. Again, remember, Iran is a just a oppressive theocracy that enforces Sharia law, so women have to wear hijabs legally or else they'll go to jail. There's a woman who's serving two years in jail right now for taking her hijab off, you know, in protest. So it's a big deal over there. And there is pictures circulated by the Iran state-run media. Iran has that just like, you know, North Korea has state-run media um, that is obviously totally biased and just tries to push the agenda of their authoritarian state. But the state-run media published these pictures of her not wearing her, her hijab. So anyway, uh, it goes on to say, Shora Bayat, 32, became one of the most prominent Iranian women in international chess after she refereed the Women's World Chess Championship in Shanghai this week. But her achievement was overshadowed by a storm of controversy after a photograph was published in which her hijab was not visible. Miss Bayat says she was in fact wearing the headscarf, but the picture had already been widely circulated in Iran. The chess master has since been bombarded with threats by Iranian conservatives, and she fears that she could be arrested if she returns home to Iran. I turned on my mobile and I saw my picture was everywhere, Miss Bayat told the BBC. They were claiming I was not wearing a headscarf and that I wanted to protest the hijab. 
She said Iran's chess federation refused to write a letter guaranteeing her safety and instead tried to pressure her into writing an apology for the incident, but she refused. There are many people in prison in Iran because of the headscarf. It's a very serious issue, but maybe they'd want to maybe make an example of me, she added, um, saying that she was, quote, totally panicked by the situation. Her case comes a day after Iran's only female Olympic medalist said she would not return to Iran and described herself as, quote, one of the millions of oppressed women in Iran, end quote. Uh, Kimia Alzadia, 21, won a bronze medal at the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. In a statement posted online, she said she would no longer be forced to wear the hijab and said Iranian official had used her, quote, as a tool. Whatever they said, I w- whatever they said, I wore. She said every sentence they ordered, I repeated. She described the decision to leave Iran as difficult but necessary. So anyway, suffice it to say, Iran, like I've said, they don't want to go to war. They have a growing group of people in their country that are just sick of the oppressive regime. They're arresting protesters, and the eyes of the world are on Iran even more so than before. You know, in the beginning of December, there were all these pieces that were written about how Iran is committing all these um, human rights violations and so on and so forth and how like they're arresting thousands and thousands of protesters they're firing on people that are running away and how it's a really egregious and then after all this happened with Soleimani and the tensions between the US and Iran and Iran shot down a freaking commercial passenger plane killing over 170 people protests have been bigger than ever before And the world is looking at Iran. There's a lot of support for the sanctions that the U.S. is going to put against Iran. So they don't want to go to war. They've got bigger fish to fry, you know, like oppressing women and killing gay people. You know, they've got their mind on other things. So war is not going to happen. That's where things are at with Iran. And honestly, I hope that the more stuff like this circulates, the more likely it is that Iran will revolt and be able to successfully overthrow the, the mullahs because it's oppressive as all get out over there. And again, this is one more reason why it's just absolutely insane. The people that were defending Iran after the killing of Soleimani and after the stuff with the rockets, it's like, no, these don't defend these guys. This is a horrible regime. Uh, to defend them or, or to claim that they're somehow morally similar to the United States is absolutely insane. Um, anyway, so that's where stuff is with Iran. I wouldn't expect anything else that'd be going on there, but I wanted to give you guys a brief update on that. Because that thing with this with the chess Referee is just one more reason why, like, Iran is not in a good place. They're hanging by a thread internally and externally. And more than ever before, they are going to be trying to, at least in some way, seem like they're minding their P's and Q's because the world is watching right now. Um, Anyway, okay, so on impeachment. So here's what happened this past week. The House actually transferred the articles of impeachment over to the Senate. You know, there is kind of this, people were, there's the, The mainstream media that was like all just kind of articulating the same stuff Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi were saying. This is very somber. It's very serious. You know, Wolf Blitzer is going on there repeating those same lines. And then there's alternative media and there's conservatives that are like, yeah, they're giggling the whole time. She's handing out pens like souvenirs. You know, they're all going to go party in a private room at Dave and Buster's after that. I don't know if that last part's true. But anyway, they were pretty giddy about it. And again, that's fine. It's a political process. I, I increasingly I am less frustrated with the politicians who are, you know, being politicians than I am with the news media who's being biased and hacks and just parroting the things they say. But anyway, so they sent it over to the Senate 
and then they're going to send over their managers of this thing to try and decide on what the rules are going to be for the impeachment. And that's going to start on Tuesday. Uh, and so kind of where it stands, same place where it was, the Democrats want witnesses. The Republicans don't want witnesses. They want to get this thing over with. The Democrats are saying, no, we need witnesses. And in order for the Democrats to succeed in actually getting witnesses, they would need four Republicans to agree with them because there's 47 Democrats and they need a 51 vote of in favor of uh, witnesses. So they need to convince four Republicans. So I'm not sure if it's going to happen. Uh, but what I will say is that they can't have it both ways in terms of the need, the quote, you know, need for these witnesses, you know, regardless of the this Lev Parnes guy who's been going on making the rounds on the media lately. You know, the House, he was not even a, someone who was called during the House inquiry. He's kind of one of those people that kind of seems like there's a lot of smoke but no fire there, you know, just talking. The guy's under indictment right now for other things, for, you know, lying and all this other stuff. So it seems like he's probably not a trustworthy source, um, but they're still going to trot him out there. But here's what I mean by they can't have it both way with the with the witnesses stuff. So I'll, here's two excerpts from, one's from CNN, one's from NBC News, that are, they're not compatible ideas about the impeachment. So here's one from CNN. Quote, it will be up to four Republicans to side with the Constitution, decide with our democracy, decide with the rule of law, Chuck Schumer told reporters, and not side in blind obedience to President Trump and his desire to suppress the truth, because in my judgment, he probably thinks he's guilty. Schumer also suggested that Mitch McConnell wants to rush President Trump's trial so quickly because he's afraid of what American people might hear. Um, so Chuck, Chuck Schumer is saying, look, we need witnesses. Otherwise, this is a cover-up. You know, the word cover-up has been what Adam Schiff has been saying, Jerry Nadler, Nancy Pelosi, etc. The idea is that if the Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate don't call these witnesses, then it's a big cover-up because they're colluding with the president to cover up his crimes. And so the American people have a right to know. Um, and they're talking about suppressing the truth if they don't have witnesses. All right, but here's it from NBC News again. I think this was like a day or two after or before that CNN article. I think it was before. Uh, quote, House managers in the impeachment trial of President Donald Trump filed their brief to the Senate on Saturday, outlining a, quote, compelling case against Trump, who will deliver his own brief to the chambers on Monday. The House managers, seven Democratic congressional leaders who will try the case against Trump during the Senate trial starting next week, say in the brief that the evidence against Trump is, quote, overwhelming and proves he used his official power to pressure Ukraine to interfere in the upcoming 2020 election. So here's what I mean. They can't have it both ways. If it's so overwhelming and it, you know, again, quote, proves the actions of the president in the brief. So whenever they're talking about the brief, they're talking about basically the fruit of the inquiry that took place in the House of Representatives and all of, you know, the evidence and all the stuff that they accumulated and why they felt it was necessary to impeach President Trump and all of their supporting evidence. And so they're saying, look, this is overwhelming. This proves the crimes of the president. This is so damning. This is what they said all during that, the impeachment inquiry. This is overwhelming. This is damning stuff, this, that, and the other thing. Well, if that's the case and the evidence is so overwhelming, then the Senate shouldn't need additional information, right? There, there is no, there's nothing to cover up because the truth is already out there and can't be suppressed, as Chuck Schumer was saying. So if it's super overwhelming, then the Senate has everything it needs and they don't need to call witnesses or can't be a cover-up because the truth has already been exposed by the House of Representatives in this amazing case brief that they have as a result of their inquiry. But 
if they do need witnesses, and it would be suppressing the truth, if they don't call witnesses, then it shows that the House of Representatives' brief is totally inadequate in proving what it claims to prove, and that the claims of it having this overwhelming evidence can't be true. So either the House brief is sufficient, and what they did in the House was really good, and it made a lot of sense, and President Trump gave them no choice, or it was entirely insufficient, it was a partisan hit job, and the Senate would need to, as Mitch McConnell said, do their homework for them. But they can't have it both ways. And so I'm not sure which one of those ideas is ultimately going to win out. Um, But what I will say is I think that for most people, like those are two mainstream news sources. And so most people can look at that and go, yeah, but wait, so is what they did in the House of Representatives good enough or not? If it wasn't good enough, then why did they do it? And it kind of reveals the partisanship there. Um, One thing that the New Yorker uh, wrote about last week that was kind of interesting, they agreed at least, it seemed like with the what I've been saying about the framing of all of this in terms of delaying the articles going over. So the New Yorker said, quote, For weeks, Speaker Nancy Pelosi refused to turn over the articles until she'd received assurances from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell about what kind of trial he planned to run. No such assurances were forthcoming, although Pelosi arguably succeeded in one respect, turning the debate away from her side's forthcoming defeat in the Senate to the matter of what would constitute a fair trial. Democrats have redefined victory to mean not necessarily winning the case, but merely getting a proper hearing for it. End quote. So that's what I've been saying is that in delaying it, Nancy Pelosi can uh, was able to reframe it of that this isn't about the partisan nonsense in the House. This isn't about you know us us losing again. I said you know we all know what's going to happen here, and then we didn't know what was going to happen there. And so they're saying, look, yeah, she did reframe it, and I think that's probably right. The main question is going to be is if the reframing was enough to put pressure on just a few Republican senators to accept the premise. One thing I will say is that I have seen the the way even people on the right have accepted this premise of an impartial trial, which again is insane. I just happened to be walking by a TV that had the, this local news. We're talking to a GOP senator. I don't even know who it was. And they were like, how can you be impartial? You know, President Trump endorsed you. How can you? And he's like, yeah, I'll be impartial. I'll be impartial. It's like, what? No, you're not. No, you're not. Why are you accepting the premise? That's insane. There was a piece in The Hill just the other day calling for Mitch McConnell to recuse himself because he said he wouldn't be impartial. Again, these guys aren't aren't jurors. This isn't an actual trial. This is a political process. No one is going to be impartial here. If you're a Democrat, you're biased. That's why Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, etc., during all of the Democrat debates earlier in the year, or at the end of 2019, we're saying, yeah, he needs to be impeached. Senator Warren called for his impeachment at the beginning of 2019, before any of the Ukraine stuff. So they're not impartial, nor should they be, by the way. I don't think that's wrong for them to not be impartial, just like I don't think it's wrong for Mitch McConnell to not be impartial. Um, so, But the premise has been accepted. And again, if there's articles calling for Mitch McConnell to recuse himself, it does show that there has been some traction with the way that Nancy Pelosi has been able to reframe this. So we're going to get a lot of our answers this coming week. Uh, so I'll talk about that next week in terms of how successful were they, or they're able to get some Republicans on board with saying, oh, we do need to call these witnesses. So we'll see what happens. But I do think it's interesting. And again, whenever the State of the Union happens in, I guess, like less than two weeks from now, um, President Trump will be giving it in front of a uh, Senate that will be impeaching him or, or de- 
deciding on his impeachment. So that'll be, makes for some pretty interesting TV. Uh, so the Democrat primaries, anyway, that's where impeachment stands. We'll see what happens. The Democrat primaries. So there was a debate this past Tuesday. It was super duper boring. It was, you know, it was in Iowa. It was one right before the Iowa caucuses. It was kind of like the last debate of people making their case before going to Iowa. And again, Iowa usually sets the stage for how the primaries are going to go. A lot of people's votes are decided by, oh, this person did really well in Iowa. And because of how important electability is right now in this Democratic primary, that's the main thing. I think people, like whoever does well in the first two debates, the momentum will carry them forward because of the idea of electability. At least that'd be my perception. So anyway, so it's a big deal. But the debate was super boring. Uh, Biden got to just coast. He barely said anything, but he but he was alive. He did prove that he was alive, which is basically all he had to do. Uh, Amy Klobuchar had a really horrible showing. She went over on her time for every question. I don't know what she was thinking. It was probably her worst debate performance yet, outside of the one where her hair was shaking uh, like crazy. Um, anyway, so she looked really bad. The main thing that happened, and this is what everyone was waiting for, expecting, was kind of the kerfuffle or whatever between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders to be addressed. So again, in case you've been living under a rock, right before the debate, like a day, day and a half before the debate, there was CNN broke this story that in 2018, when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were talking once that Bernie had said that he didn't think a woman could be president. And then, you know, CNN breaks the story and Elizabeth Warren releases a statement that, yeah, he said this and I disagreed with him and all this other stuff. And so people were waiting for that to be addressed. Obviously, that was Elizabeth Warren, her campaign, just totally kneecapping Bernie Sanders. There's no reason to believe that he would have said that. And there's no reason to believe Elizabeth Warren, you know, generally because of how disingenuous she's been for this entire campaign um, and just the, just the overt lies that she tells. Uh, but people were waiting to see how that would be addressed. And w really what it became was it became an indictment of, one, CNN, and an indictment of Elizabeth Warren. You know, Bernie Sanders walked away, I think, looking the best here. Uh, his poll numbers didn't shift. Elizabeth Warren continued to drop. But a lot of this kind of showed one of the broader issues of media bias. So here is, here is how they brought it up. So there, the moderator is a woman named Abby Phillips who works for CNN. And she was addressing the question to Bernie Sanders and asked him, like, here, this came out, you've denied it. And he's like, look, no, I didn't say that. And not only that, in 2016, there were people that wanted her to run for president, and I deferred to her. I was like, if you don't do it, I will, but I'm going to give you first choice. And he said Warren didn't want to do it in 2016, and so he did. And that's why he was even in that race. And so he's like, of course, it's ludicrous. There's clips on YouTube 30 years ago of me saying that a woman could be president. So, yeah, no, it's absurd. And then CNN, this is what Abby Phillips says, quote, I want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. And then Bernie Sanders says, that is correct. And then this is what Abby, Abby Phillips does. OK, this is insane. So then she looks at, Senator, at Elizabeth Warren and says, quote, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you that a woman could not win an election? Like what? So Bernie Sanders just straight up said, I didn't say this. There's no evidence that he said this. This is truly a she said, he said kind of thing. And he said, and he denied saying it. And then they turned to Elizabeth Warren and just acted as if he didn't deny it, acted as if it was totally fact that Bernie had said this. And then this is what, how Elizabeth Warren responds. 
She said, because they're like, well, how did you, what did you say whenever Senator Sanders definitely told you that? And she said, I disagreed. Bernie is my friend and I'm not here to try to fight with Bernie. The question has been raised and it's time for us to attack it head on. It's like, yeah, the question has been raised by you and your hack campaign and these CNN moderators going along with it. And so then she goes on to make her plea for why, you know, that her and Amy Klobuchar have never lost an election and all the men on the stage have lost like a total of 10 elections. And so it was, I mean, total overt bias in the news media there. And then what was insane about that is how obvious it was. And I think that it was a good thing for a lot of people to see that, you know, whenever people talk about like myself, you know, I talk about bias in the media, people only think that it's like a left versus right, or that's like something that people who aren't fully on the left, that that's just their perception. And that that's like something that conservatives say and some conspiracy that all the Fox News watchers say. But it's not just a left versus right, you know, that CNN, they have ideological preferences. And because there's such ideological differences in the Democratic Party, like they clearly have a bias there. Like Abby Phillips asking that question in that way clearly demonstrates her bias. And so I think that was good for people to see of like, no, it's not just that they're biased against conservatives. Yes, that's obviously true, but they're also biased against anyone who isn't how they think, which is an establishment Democrat, really, in a lot of ways. And so that's why they're, I mean, they're straight up super biased against Bernie Sanders. And what was crazy is that after the debate, you know, they go and shake hands and stuff. And Bernie reached out his hand. Elizabeth Warren had made like a beeline towards him and she refused to shake his hand. And she's, and this is the interaction that happened after that. She said, I think you called me a liar on national TV. And Bernie Sanders, because he's like 400 years old, he says, what? And then she repeated it. She said, I think you called me a liar on national TV. And then Sanders says, let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion? We'll have that discussion. And then Warren says, anytime. And Sanders says, you called me a liar. You told me. And then he realizes he's getting pissed. And he just like kind of throws his hands up in the air and says, all right, let's, let's not do it now. And then he kind of walks off. And so I was, again, bonkers about that as we only saw the video. And then CNN released the audio afterwards presumably because they thought it made Bernie look bad and it made Warren look good. But really, again, I think it made CNN look really bad because it's like, if you're those people on that stage, you're going to assume the mics are off. And I would be like, I don't trust you. Like, I thought the mic was off. And so I would consider that some type of violation of privacy. But anyways, you know, you got to feel for Bernie Sanders here where, you know, the next day, so on Wednesday, so the debate, I think it was on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, I'm combing through all of the mainstream media trying to find, okay, how much are people going to talk about that insane line of questioning from Abby Phillips and how biased it was against Bernie Sanders. And on CNN, it's all about how Elizabeth Warren had her greatest debate night yet. And same thing on Huffington Post and all of the main websites and NBC, all that stuff. And all of them were all about like, man, Elizabeth Warren did so good. What a powerful debate performance from Elizabeth Warren. There was only a few articles I could find of where people were like, this is bullcrap. What are you talking about? I can't believe they did this. And so it was a ton of things propping up Elizabeth Warren and a lot of anti-Bernie hit pieces, you know, and what was really bonkers about that is again, is it shows the media bias against Bernie Sanders here. You know, I, th I think I said at the time, I was like, I, put, I was either a tweet or something on Facebook or something. Where I'm like, look, I don't like Bernie Sanders' policies. I think they're garbage, but he deserves better than the way he was treated there. And I, I think that's true. And his supporters were pissed, rightfully so. Um, here was from a Huffington Post article just the other day. It was 
said Bernie Sanders called the Democratic Party intellectually bankrupt in a 1985 letter. Um, quote, Senator Sanders once told fellow left-wing activists that the Democratic Party was too intellectually bankrupt to allow the progressive movement to flourish within it. In a 1985 letter newly obtained by Huffington Post, in which Sanders debated running for governor, he wrote, quote, whether I run for governor or not is really not important. What would be a tragedy, however, is for people with a radical vision to fall into the pathetic camp of the intellectually bankrupt Democratic Party. I believe that the real changes that are needed in this country are not going to be brought about by working with the Democratic or the Republican Party. So, I mean, two things there. One is, again, that underscores that even back in the mid-80s, I think this is probably a, a legit letter, um, but the fact the Huffington Post is posting it is a hit piece. They've been actively endorsed Elizabeth Warren. Um, but it shows that even in the mid-80s, Bernie Sanders was like, yeah, this is what I, the vision I have is different than the Democratic Party, which is what I've been saying. That's what I talked about last week from that piece from that socialist magazine, Jacobin, saying the same thing. Bernie recognized it then. That's why I think when he first started winning elections, he ran as an independent, and then he became a Democrat. The other part about that is, again, is it shows all these hit pieces against him is that there is some type of machine, you know, working against Bernie Sanders and propping up Elizabeth Warren. One thing that I really can't understand is this is kind of the the code that I'm yet to crack is that I don't understand why the establishment seems so enamored with Warren again all of a sudden. Um, and maybe it's not so much that they are for her, but it's just that they're so against Bernie that they're going to prop her up in this. But because of her policies that are so crazy, especially like the wealth tax, the fact that the guy who wrote her economic policies, Gabriel Zuckman, I think I've talked about him before, is a straight-up communist. Um, and it's, I mean big deal, like totally unapologetic about it. I mean, the guy calls for state-run media in the U.S., getting rid of voter ID and voter registration for our elections. I mean, he's he's a real deal communist, and he's the one who wrote her economic plans, including her wealth tax. So I don't understand why there are people that in the Democratic establishment that seem like they're propping up Elizabeth Warren, because it's hard to kind of distinguish her from Bernie Sanders and some of the policies. I'm wondering if it's not so much that they're for her, but they're against him because of the momentum he seems to be getting this time around. One thing I was thinking about also is, you know, I don't know why he didn't change his strategy going into this this election. I mean, in 2016, the DNC was totally working against him. A lot of people in the mainstream media were working against him. And so the fact that he didn't come out swinging this time around is kind of astounding to me. I think he made the same mistake of, you know, he didn't attack Elizabeth Warren and then she kneecapped him. You know, and that's where I've said before, I think Bernie, even though he has bad policies, I think he is a principled kind of guy. And I think that's one of the things that's going to cost him here. But his supporters are pissed. There was a few articles that I was reading about how his supporters were like, if you guys nominate a moderate and this and basically 2016 happens again, we're going to stay home because screw you for doing this. And I totally understand that. Now, one thing that I have been thinking about, and let me know what you think about this, I think this is kind of where my mind's at right now, is not so much about the, who the nominee is, but who the VP is going, the VP pick will be for that nominee. So let's say, you know, default Joe Biden gets the nomination. Joe Biden is approximately 4,000 years old. And so I think that if they pick a um, energetic, well-spoken, progressive, you know, intersectional, whatever checks those boxes, running mate for Biden, I think that that actually would, it would do a couple things. One is it would totally get the 
the bass, the progressive bass jacked up because they'd be like, okay, the good deal, you know, Biden's probably going to die here in four minutes. So then we'll have our progressive president with our progressive policies. I think that a, a really energetic progressive VP pick would probably destroy Mike Pence in the VP debates, to be totally honest. Mike Pence is, he's, he didn't strike me like as a standout debater during the uh, presidential election in 2016, and they do have VP debates. So I think that, you know, people forget Mike Pence is not very popular with a lot of people, and he's the vice president. So I think that he would probably get destroyed by a progressive in the debates. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that at least that'd be the perception. And the other thing that would happen there is that if that if they did get a, a real deal progressive as the VP nominee, is that would probably seal the deal for the progressives within the Democratic Party in terms of who's going to win out. Because, you know, if people thought that it, that person would be a shoe-in for the president, then now we have socialist president, whoever, and the progressive will have won. You know, one thing I've been thinking about, I wrote about this earlier in the week, you know, in the movie Captain America, the first Avenger, so there's this group, Hydra, that Red Skull runs, and they operate within the Third Reich under the Nazis, but they're not actually part of it. They're just kind of feeding off of it. And at the end of the movie, it's revealed, you know, they have this master plan to bomb all of Red Skull's em enemies. And, like, one of the Nazi guys comes over there. He's been checking on their progress, and he sees that the map of all their targets, Berlin is on there. And he's like, you're talking about your enemies. Berlin's on that map. And Red Skull's like, yeah, we all knew that Hydra was going to outgrow uh, Hitler eventually, and we would move out of his shadow. And then we would just, you know, take over and do our own thing like our plan was all along. And so I think that there's a lot of ways in which the progressive movement has operated in a similar manner within the Democratic Party, you know, kind of feeding off of its energy, feeding off of the legitimacy, you know, bringing people slowly over their side. But I think that there is a good chance that they will outgrow the Democratic Party just like Hydra does with the Third Reich and Captain America. Like they're not actually that, but they needed the funds and the resources from the Third Reich in that movie in order to get the power to actually come to fruition with all their plans. I think the progressives, at least the hardcore ones, I mean, again, Bernie Sanders acknowledged that in the 80s. AOC is acknowledging it now. Like, I think that there's a similar thing happening there. And so if there is a VP pick that is really woke, really progressive, and that kind of, that person becomes, it's like they legitimize the progressive movement for mainstream Democrats, then, then the progressives will win. The other side of it is that if they don't do that, if they don't nominate someone you know sufficiently woke or whatever, is it'll further split the Democratic Party and probably ensure Trump's victory in 2020 because people won't be motivated to go out and vote because of how popular. I mean, Bernie Sanders really did legitimize this stuff back in 2016. He was considered a radical then. Obviously, there's still a lot of people that consider him radical now, but in terms of making things like Medicare for all mainstream ideas, he absolutely succeeded in that. So if, if they don't, if the moderates kind of win out and Biden and he nominates whoever is his running mate of another person who's perceived to be moderate, then I would expect there to be, you know, hell to pay really among the progressive base, especially the Bernie bros. And by the way, rightfully so, in my opinion, like they should be furious. And again, I hope that this thing shows that the media are biased. It's not just against conservatives or centrists even really they have their own agenda and anyone that doesn't check the boxes of their agenda they're going to go against even if it's you know quote unquote one of their own like bernie sanders here um and they did they've done the same thing with pete Buttigieg as well 
Um, anyway, and here's the last thing about that is the impeachment trial, you know, the estimates right now are like three to six weeks. So if they start that, you know, next week, Iowa caucuses are two weeks away. The New Hampshire primary is like three to four weeks away. So again, I, there's a good chance that the delaying of sending the articles over into the Iowa and New Hampshire uh, Democrat uh, candidate selection could be a calculation to keep to Warren and Sanders, and maybe just particularly Sanders, out and hurt their campaigns to kind of ensure that Biden gets it. Because Biden and Pete Buttigieg will basically have free reign, same with Andrew Yang, although he's not polling very high, will have free reign to go out there and campaign while the senators, Klobuchar, Warren, Sanders, will be having to deal with impeachment. Um, so we'll see how all that plays out. Uh, but it does seem pretty bonkers, you know, and I think it's bonkers also to not think that Pelosi isn't totally aware that, oh, by sending the impeachment at this time, these are the senators who won't be on the campaign trail. Like, she knows what she's doing. So again, I think that if we don't exactly know what's going on, it's safe to say that there is a plan. Um, so whether it was reframing it or hurting some of these, you know, probably just mostly uh, Bernie here, I think they, they know what they're doing. The establishment knows what they're doing. Okay, so my wife sent me this quiz uh, that the Washington Post has. It's 20 questions of like which Democrat I should vote for in 2020, which one agrees with me the most. I have not taken this. Uh, it was based on more than 85 policy questions to the campaign. Uh, so I'm going to take this now, so we'll see. That would be kind of fun to take it you know, live for you guys and see which, which Democrat agrees with me the most. So I'll read the questions and tell you the answers that I pick. And there's only 20 of them. So the first one. Some gun control advocates have called for a federal registry of guns. If someone buys a gun, they, one, should have to register it, two, should have to register it if it's an assault weapon, or three, should not have to register it. So I'm going to pick three. I don't think they should have to register it. That is not good. Candidates who agree with me. The first one that popped up was Pete Buttigieg. All right. Question two. Recreational marijuana should, one, be legalized federally, two, be decriminalized and left up to states to legalize, Three, remain illegally federally, or remain illegal federally. I'll pick the, the middle one. I think it should be decriminalized and let states do what they want. I'm more in favor of states' rights. Let states, you know, pass whatever policies they want, and people can stay or go. Candidates who agree with me, Biden and Bloomberg. Okay. Question three. Fracking has contributed to a boom in U.S. oil and gas production in the past decade, but can affect the environment through groundwater contamination and continued reliance on fossil fuels. The U.S. should... One, ban all fracking. Two, limit or better regulate fracking. Or three, maintain current policy on fracking. Um, what I'll say is if there was some really crazy stuff that had been resulted, like actually happened as a result of fracking, I think that it would be in the news pretty hardcore. And so I'll say maintain current policy because I have no reason to think that, um, that it's actually a disaster right now. It says candidates are split on it. Uh, I think that nuclear is the main question, but I'm not sure if they asked that here. Okay, question four. All Democratic candidates support increasing income tax on the wealthy, but some are also proposing a tax on the net worth of extremely wealthy individuals rather than just on their income. The U.S. should or should not enact a wealth tax. Should not. Nope. Candidates who agree with me. Biden, Bloomberg, and Yang. Okay. Some Amer Here's question five. Some Americans currently get their health insurance through federal programs like Medicare and Medicaid. Government-run health insurance, one, should cover everyone. 
Two, should be an option for everyone. Three, should not be available to everyone. Let's say should probably not be available to everyone. Um, none of the top Democrats agree with you. All right, that's because I'm, I don't agree with government-run health care. So, uh, question six. The U.S. should or should not consider setting a price on carbon emissions, such as a carbon tax or cap-and-trade. Um, I'm not a big fan of carbon taxes. I do like, so there's... Uh, this carbon scrubbing technology that people are starting to implement where basically if you have some type of industry where you are emitting carbon into the environment, there is this technology that scrubs the carbon out of your emissions. It's kind of like these big filters. So I'm not sure about a carbon tax. I think I'd probably be okay with it only because I think it might incentivize um, the things like that carbon scrubbing technology. So I'd probably be okay with a carbon tax to be honest. Candidates who agree with me. Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Steyer, Warren, Yang. Uh, yeah. So I guess it would depend on how it was worded, but I think a, a tax on something like that wouldn't be the worst thing on planet Earth if it was very narrowly defined and would measurably incentivize people to implement some of that, you know, again, like carbon scrubbing technology. Question seven. Two states allow all individuals from prison and many states restrict all individuals to vote from prison, and many states restrict voting for convicted felons after release. Uh, blank should be able to vote. All prisoners, some prisoners, only after release, all prisoners, only after release, some prisoners. Yeah, only after release, some prisoners. None of the Democrats agree with me, because of course not. Okay, question eight. Current law prohibits the use of federal funding for abortions, except in cases of rape, incest, or when the health of the mother is at risk. So they've changed, the, it used to be life, now it's health, because this is where, I'm going to talk next week about why words matter and some cases where um, tricky use of wording kind of changes the meaning of things in a way where people might agree to something that they don't necessarily know what they're agreeing with. So when people hear health there, they're, they usually think life or physical safety. But that word health was changed, it used to be life, and now it's health because they bake in this idea of mental health. So if a woman can say that, you know, being pregnant or whatever sufficiently stresses her mentally, then a doctor can endorse, say that she needs to get an abortion for her health, for health reasons, even though it's not an actual like physical health. So it totally broadens out uh, the impetus to get an abortion at any stage of the pregnancy by changing it from life of the mother to health of the mother. Uh, anyway, I'll talk more about some of that wording stuff next week. Uh, federal funding for abortions should or should not be restricted. Should absolutely be restricted. None of the top Democrats agree with me. Uh, passed in 1976, the Hyde Amendment prohibits the use of federal funding for abortion services on Medicaid, except in cases of rape, incest, or when the health of the mother is at risk. A Politico-Harvard poll ahead of the 2016 election found that 58% of likely voters, including 37% of Democratic voters, opposed changing the current policy to allow Medicaid funding for abortions. So, so it seems like that's a majority of voters opposed changing the policy, but none of the current candidates uh, oppose, or none of the current candidates oppose that. They want to change the Hyde Amendment. It's a bad deal, in my opinion. Okay, question nine. Universal basic income would give every adult a monthly payment from the federal government. The U.S. should or should not consider a universal basic income. Should not, absolutely, unequivocally, should not. UBI, I think, is one of the most dangerous policies currently being kicked around. I might do a thing where I talk about that at a later point in time, depending on how popular it gets. 
Candidates who agree with me, Biden, Bloomberg, Klobuchar, Sanders, Steyer. Uh, okay, under uh, question 10, under an employment guarantee, every American would be entitled to a government job if they want it. The U.S. should or should not consider enacting a jobs guarantee. Should not, absolutely not. Um, that's one of the things that they talked about after the Great Depression. Uh, it's not, you can't do that, you can't guarantee these government jobs to everyone. Um, you just need to free up businesses to be able to operate to create jobs. Uh, so it says that it looks like basically all the candidates agree with me. Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg, Gabbard, Klobuchar, Steyer, and Yang. So Warren probably disagrees, and uh, Sanders disagree, or they, they want a jobs guarantee. Question 11. The Obama administration focused its deportation efforts on three groups, recent border crossers, convicted criminals, and national security threats. The U.S. should halt deport deportations, focus on convicted criminals and threats only, focus on all three groups, aim to de deport anyone in the country illegally. I would say focus on all three groups, recent border crossers, convicted criminals, and national security threats. Uh, the reason why I don't select aim to deport anyone in the country illegally is because that means uh, people who've overstayed visas. That means if someone's been here illegally, let's say for 20, 30 years, and it, you know for whatever reason they just now got found out that that person could be deported, you know, that that person's an American. You know, I think if they're contributing to society, then, yeah, they need to be treated like an individual. Um, so that's why I like, yeah, recent border crossers, convicted criminals, and national security threats. Anyone in the country illegally, I think that that's too broad and that there would absolutely be exceptions to that, to be totally honest. Uh, present, uh, what's the next one? Okay. Healthcare for many Americans is provided by private insurance plans paid through their employers. In an overhaul of the American healthcare system, Private insurance should be eliminated or continue to exist. Of course, be eliminated to, or continue to exist. Candidates that agree with you, everyone that's not Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, obviously, there should be private health insurance. Question 13. The U.S. currently requires employers to provide 12 weeks of unpaid family leave, but no paid leave. The U.S. should guarantee blank of paid leave for family workers. More than 12 weeks, 12 weeks, fewer than 12 weeks. Fewer than 12 weeks. I don't think that that should be guaranteed. No one agrees with me. Here's why I think that is that there are a lot of companies that just do that. They Because that's how the market works. If you want to attract the best employees, you give the best incentives to work there. There are, company, there are companies that now have paid leave. If you get a pet for like a pet adjustment period, the government didn't need to force that. They just do it. The government doesn't force... Google to have, you know, pinball machines and all the other crazy stuff they have at their headquarters. They just do it because Google wants to be a place that attracts the best employees. So at, in a competitive marketplace, companies will have the most incentives to get the best employees if it's a job that is a high demand job. So they don't need to have 12 weeks of guaranteed paid federal leave. And the other thing there is if you do that, Let's say, you know, this is one of the things that people don't talk about, but if you're, let's say you're a small business and you're forced to pay someone 12 weeks, that's paying them for three months of not doing anything for you. 12 weeks of unpaid labor, let's say that person decides to quit and become a stay-at-home parent, whether it's a, a mom or a dad afterwards. Well, you just paid them for three months and then they're going to quit. Um, so there is a lot, especially if you're a small business, that's a, that's a big hit to your finances. So absolutely not. I think that if, if you have a, a good skill set that's in high demand, then companies will compete for your labor. Uh, okay, 
In the past year, the U.S. government spent nearly a trillion dollars more than it raised, but some argue that urgent policy initiatives should take priority over limiting the national debt. The president should or should not commit to stabilizing or lowering the national debt. Absolutely should. This is going to destroy us if we do not. Candidates who agree with me. Oh, that's interesting. Biden, Bloomberg, Klobuchar, and Steyer. Uh, that's interesting. Um, now, they're saying that they want to raise taxes on the middle class in order to stay deficit neutral. I think that's a bad idea. You could also do this thing called cut spending. What a novel concept. But yeah, the, if we don't address the debt, that's one of those, I've talked about this, where the plot's going to find us uh, sooner or later because of the insolvency of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Here within the next, uh, I think like eight years, I think all of those will be insolvent. Okay, uh, 15. The Supreme Court has had nine justices since, the ni since 1869. The president should or should not consider adding more justices to the Supreme Court to change its ideological balance. Absolutely should not consider that. That's a horrible idea. Biden, Bloomberg, Gabbard, and Sanders. Liberals have increasingly called for the next Democratic president to increase the number of Supreme Court justices. The calls to do so grew after Senate Republicans successfully blocked Merrick Garland's nomination on the bench in 2016 under President Obama. President Roosevelt planned to pack the high court after its conservative members struck down parts of his popular legislative accomplishments, such as minimum wage increases. Roosevelt backed down from the plan after the court reversed its ruling on the minimum wage issue. Yeah, Roosevelt was going to pack the court because the court said this is unconstitutional. And actually, the other thing he was going to uh, implement was term limits. And so he basically threatened, like, bullied the Supreme Court into putting through a bunch of garbage policies. Question 16. Nuclear power is the nation's largest carbon-neutral energy source, but high-profile accidents and, qu and the questions of where to store nuclear waste complicate its future. The government... Uh, should expand, pause the expansion of, or phase out nuclear power. Absolutely expand. High-profile accidents are so minimum. It doesn't really happen in the U.S. It happens in places that are reckless. Nu if people that are concerned with a cleaner future, that want to lower um, the climate change, the impact humans are having on climate change, and don't support nuclear power, are absolutely out of their mind. Candidates who agree with you, Andrew Yang, yeah, so after the Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima caused concerns about safety of nuclear power and, and halted new construction in many countries, um, the, the 96 active U.S. commercial nuclear reactors generate roughly one-fifth of the nation's power, but 11 are scheduled for retirement by 2025. I didn't know that. 11 out of 96, that's a huge percentage. Only one U.S. reactor began operating in the past 20 years. Two new reactors are under construction in Georgia with loan guarantees from both the Obama and Trump administrations. Nuclear power is one of the most divisive climate change policies in this primary. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, they absolutely need to expand it. Okay, question 17. The government should make four years of college free, debt-free, or affordable for all families, including the wealthy. Okay, I, I don't like the premise here because I don't think the government should be involved. But let's say affordable... Uh, and by that, I mean get out of it. One of the reasons why tuition has skyrocketed is because the government backs these loans so colleges can raise their prices. College, like, tuition has increased a lot, and it is a problem. That was one of the things why I was drawn to Bernie Sanders in uh, the 2015 primaries was because he was talking about it. And I'm like, you're right. There is a problem here. Uh, and I, I still think there's a problem, but the answer is less government, not more in my opinion. Candidates who agree with you. Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg, Gabbard, Klobuchar, Yang. I'm finding that basically all of these questions, 
the candidates who agree with me are basically not Bernie Sanders, not Elizabeth Warren. Uh, okay, Americans owe a record of $1.6 trillion in student loan debt with 2 in 10 borrowers behind on their payments, according to the Federal Reserve. Student loan debt should be canceled for everyone, canceled for lower incomes, reduced but not outright canceled, or left alone. That's a tough question. You know, I think that that is one of those things where the government caused the problem in a lot of ways. Uh, but those are loans that people took out, including me. I've got a ton of student loans. Now, I wasn't aware of like how imposing it is to have those loans at the time, but I still made that decision as an adult, and I'm still paying for those student loans. Um, so I think that it should be left alone, but again, um, it is a problem, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that the government guarantees these loans, and you know, bankruptcy does not clear your student loans. It's like the only debt it doesn't cancel out, I'm pretty sure. Uh, none of the candidates agree with me. Of course not. Okay, uh, almost done. In 2016, Democrat nominee Hillary Clinton received more votes than Donald Trump but lost the election. The U.S. should or should not consider eliminating the electoral college system in favor of popular vote. Absolutely should not consider it. That is a horrible idea. Bloomberg and Yang um, are the ones who agree with me here. Okay, and here's the last question. As President, Barack Obama spent years negotiating a free trade pact with countries bordering the Pacific Ocean to counterbalance China's economic might in the region. Hillary Clinton opposed it in 2016, and President Trump withdrew from the agreement. The U.S. should consider or should not consider joining the latest version of that agreement. I would say probably should not consider that agreement just because if it has bipartisan support between... Um, Hillary Clinton, President Trump, uh, in the 2016 election, then I would say it's probably a good idea to not support it. Oh, candidates who agree with you, Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Tom Steyer. Uh, yeah, so that's interesting. So here's the ones who agree with me from the least to the greatest. Uh, Bloomberg agrees with me on 10. Um, Biden, okay, oh, this is just order. Bi Bloomberg, Biden, Yang... Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Steyer, Gabbard, Sanders, Warren, and I don't know, there's no number one. Interesting. So, all right, so there we go. So now I know. This is kind of interesting. I'm going to put a link to it in the sources so you guys can take a look at it. You can take this yourself. Uh, it's because it tells you where these candidates stand on stuff. Um, you know, maybe Mike Bloomberg does have more appeal than I originally gave him credit for. I don't think he does, for the record. Um, but it does make me understand a little bit more the appeal of Biden and Bloomberg. Now, there is stuff that, at least that Biden has said, and again, Buttigieg has said, where those guys are not, they're not moderates. You know, Biden now wants to repeal the Hyde Amendment, for example. Um, but it, it, I understand why really disillusioned uh, people who are strongly opposed to Donald Trump would support some of those people. So anyway, so that's an interesting kind of thing there. Uh, I, there you have it. I'm voting for Mike Bloomberg in, uh, in 2020, assuming he gets the nomination, right? Uh, probably not. Okay. Anyway, I'll put that in there. You guys can take that if you do so choose. But it is interesting, again, to kind of know that each of those campaigns had to submit answers to the Washington Post for, like, where they stood on those issues. So those are answers from the campaign. Of course, again, it's, you know, it's politicians. They change that stuff up. But it does tell us at least where their campaign says they stand on those issues. So if you're wanting a clear cut kind of where each person stands on X thing, that's a good resource, at least for the time being. So go ahead and check it out. I'll put it in my sources. 
All right, so here's the last thing we're going to talk about. So MLK Junior Day is tomorrow, um, and I, I I thought it'd be worth talking about just kind of the legacy of Martin Luther King, um, and going through, you know, who he what basically what he stood for and the impact he had on the civil rights movement. And honestly, I had an original kind of picture of what I was going to do for this segment. And while I was researching it, I came across this piece from The Root that I actually, I mean, seriously, stop the presses. I agreed with a piece written by Michael Harriet over at The Root. You know, for those of you that are unfamiliar with The Root, The Root is a publication that's written, uh, it's kind of for around like black culture, black voices, that kind of thing. Um, but it has, but it's really more like super radical far left kind of stuff in there. You know, Michael Harriet is one of the writers that writes very overtly racist stuff about, you know, this all, we'll never forgive white people for Donald Trump and how could we ever trust white people ever again? I think I actually quoted some of their articles in my end of 2019 piece talking about some of the crazy divisive stuff that I was worried about going into 2020 were stuff from the root on the issues of race. Um, but there was a piece that I at least agreed with the beginning of this piece in terms of them talking about Martin Luther King. And it made me kind of rethink about how I wanted to talk about it. Cause I still want to talk about Martin Luther King, but I was like, you know, actually I think Michael Harriet's right, at least about this beginning part. So I'm going to read that beginning part of what he talks about, talk about where I agree. We'll get into kind of some of the, a more robust picture of Martin Luther King and, and then why I think that's important to do that. So here's what he writes about. He says, there are two MLKs. There was once a man named Martin Luther King Jr. who actually lived and breathed. He was a radical who believed in the redistribution of wealth, argued for slave reparations, and wrote that moderate whites who didn't speak out on racism were just as bad as the Ku Klux Klan. 75% of Americans disapproved of that man when he was killed by a white supremacist in 1968. Then there's a Martin Luther King Jr. that exists in the collective white memory. Through a complex combination of whitewashing, self-guilt, and the intentional rewriting of history that absolved them of their hatred, they have painted a sanitized, impressionist portrait as of a civil rights icon whose dreams were fulfilled by America's unwavering commitment to justice and equality. Out of the whole cloth, they managed to fabricate a fantastic hologram of King that is ahistorical, but still based on a true story. Their Martin Luther King was a lover, not a fighter. They remember a socially conservative, respectable reconciler, not an anti-establishment revolutionary. And for their sake, his doctrine of nonviolent resistance was eventually reduced to a simple nonviolence. This is the king they will remember this weekend. And honestly, I read that and I'm like, you know what? That's a fair assessment. You know, the original thing that I was going to write about was taking basically one line from the I Have a Dream speech and talking about where he says that he dreams that his four children will one day be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And I was going to kind of unpack that and say, man, I feel like we've regressed from that in a lot of ways where we do focus too much, where there is a call by the same people that would have been big fans of MLK back in the 50s and 60s that now to say, look, I don't want to focus on skin color. I want to focus on character is considered racist. There's actually like parts of academia that talk about the racism of colorblindness, which I do think the idea of saying that you're colorblind is a ludicrous proposition. You know, I think it was Tommy Loren said it when she went on The Daily Show and Trevor Noah was like, what do you do at stoplights? Like, that's the right answer. It's a stupid thing to say that you don't see color. The problem is, comes into play if you judge someone by color as opposed to like, yeah, yep, yeah, you're whatever color. You're a black person, you're 
a Hispanic, Middle Eastern, Asian, whatever, that informs your, I guess, life experience, but that doesn't define your identity. Um, and so I was going to talk about how, like, yeah, we've drifted from that. You know, there is a college in, I think it was Oregon, who they're petitioning to take down Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. It's on a plaque. And they're saying it's not inclusive enough because he only talks about race and he doesn't talk about like transgenderism and stuff like that. And so, and sexuality and how it's not inclusive enough. And so Martin Luther King is a problem and it's problematic and all the other stuff. And so I was going to unpack that. But after reading that, I'm like, you know what? That's right. In my mind, I feel like at least me, and I, I, I think I'm probably not alone in this, kind of reduced Martin Luther King to this caricature of, you know, the this one sentence about judging people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, instead of saying, well, let's look at who he was in his entirety as a person. And actually, if we're going to honor him, that includes acknowledging everything about him. And so let's talk about that. And I think that there are mistakes on both sides. So I think it's a mistake to only focus on like that one line and basically cherry pick the parts of what he stood for to conform to your own worldview. And I think both people on the ideological left and on the ideological right do it. I think a lot of people on the ideological right do that when it, when it comes to like just that part about ju not judging people by the color of their skin. Um, I, I was going to do that in how I originally planned on doing this piece, but there is a growing movement on the left to say we're going to dismiss that part and only focus on his criticisms of capitalism and how he had talked pretty in friendly terms about Marxism, especially at the end of his life. And so let's talk about that in the context of, of that and who he was as a full person and not just these caricatures that are convenient uh, to whatever, you know, our beliefs are. And then at the end, I kind of want to talk about why it's a problem to do that in the first place, you know, to attach principles to a person instead of just adhering to the principle. Uh, so he gives his I Have a Dream speech in August 63. So understand Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that happened before that, but I just kind of want to give a brief snapshot of kind of the two sides of where people look at him from. Um, and this is this happened before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. So Martin Luther King is looking around. Jim Crow is Jim Crow. Jim Crow is still in place. Um, there is a book that a lot of kids read in school called "The Watsons Go to Birmingham." That's about this family that travels from Flint, Michigan, down to Birmingham in 1963, and it. It goes. It basically bakes in his bombing of a church of a black church that took place in 1963. So there is a lot of horrible things happening in the country, and Martin Luther King's looking around and saying, "I've got a dream when this insane violence and this insane racism isn't in place." And so he gives that speech, and then the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is passed shortly afterwards, which does away with all of the Jim Crow laws of the South because it federally makes those things illegal. And then the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed. And so there's kind of the Martin Luther King of the civil rights movement of up to that point, basically. And there's other writings where he put, I think it was in the mid-40s, mid-50s, where he was very critical of Marxism and he said he rejected it outright because Martin Luther King was a pastor as well, he, you know, theology is one of the things that he used to support a lot of his claims of equality, and he didn't like the fact that Marx was against religion, and he said, look, if we go, if we adhere to Marxism, then that means doing away with my belief system. So he was pretty critical of that, and he, a lot of his rhetoric around the civil rights movement up to that point 
was the, the ideas in the I Have a Dream speech of about equality. Um, now, he, he did write, and I think it was letters from a Birmingham prison. I think that was actually also in 63. It might have been 62. That's where he wrote about how the lukewarm white liberals were more frustrating to him than the racists in the KKK because he's like, there are these people that say they agree with us, but then they don't actually do anything about it. And they're more confusing to me than the overt racists because it's like, if you agree with me, how come you're not on my side, actually? Um, so those are the types of things he was talking about then. But then in 1965, the U.S. enters the Vietnam War officially, and we send troops over there officially. And again, Martin Luther King, throughout all of the civil rights movement, you know, he was part of the left, and that's a lot of where the anti-war protests come from. And so he gets kind of swept up in the anti-war movement after U.S. eventually... Uh, officially entered the war in 1965 and in 1967 is when a lot of the big major anti-war protests took place you know remember there, that's in 67 1969 was Woodstock which is kind of the big culmination of that anti-war hippie movement and so Martin Luther King now he, he was killed in 68 but I'm saying that's that was the kind of the cultural movement that was taking place then King gets swept up in that and he becomes a big part of the anti-war movement and that's whenever he starts speaking out against capitalism, against militarism. And there are people on the left that now want to disregard all of the civil rights stuff before that and just talk about how he was, he was critical of capitalism at the end of his life. But a lot of that came out of the anti-war stuff and how you know there was people were just against what the U.S. government was doing in a lot of ways. And that, the idea of capitalism was baked into that. And so in 1967, again, when a lot of these anti-war protests break out, he gives a speech called The Three Evils of Society. And here are some quotes from it. And, I, and again, I, this is part of his legacy that I think it's, it's not doing him justice to ignore all of his beliefs and to ignore the fact that not only did he articulate the definition, I think, of equality in a really well-articulated uh, manner, but he had a picture at the end of his life of what he thought equality looked like uh, that might not be something that everyone would agree with. So here are some quotes from him that's from that um, Three Evils in Society. Uh, quote, the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. So again, he was for redistribution of wealth and of political power among minorities, the forced redistribution uh, of that. He also said, quote, the evils of capitalism are as real as the evils of militarism and the evils of racism. So you notice that militarism is baked into that. Again, that's part of that anti-war protest. But he, was, he had some critiques of capitalism. He also said, quote, again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact that is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. So he said those things in, in 1967, and, and a lot of people on the left now are saying that that's, that's the legacy of Martin Luther King and ignoring the other part, just like there are people on the right who ignore that stuff and say that his legacy was basically judging people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Now, one thing that's important to note is that whenever he gave that three evils of society and he outlines his issues with capitalism, there are other big sections. I'll, I'll put a link to that whole speech uh, in the comments. But a lot of what his 
critiques were of were of materialism, which he said was destructive to the soul. And so again, because of his beliefs theologically, he identified capitalism with the materialism, and he was saying, "Look, you know, this is about the pursuit of stuff and stuff making you happy," and I reject that that notion. Now, the other part of it is that he was looking around and saying that, okay, that we passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, and there's still tremendous economic inequalities. And so he was uh, disillusioned with the system that was in place and was saying, look, this isn't working, and so we need to redistribute wealth because the, uh, the black community isn't succeeding under capitalism. It's all exploitative. And I can I can at least understand why he would think that. Now, Thomas Sowell does a good job of laying out the economic trends in the black community in America, pre-civil rights movement and post-civil rights movement. And in terms of like employment and uh, income, all this other stuff, those numbers were actually going up prior to the civil rights movement, and they start to decline after the civil rights movement. Um, so he, he writes about that in several of his books. I think um, race and... Uh, inequality, I think, is one of them he writes about. He talks about it in Black Rednecks and White Liberals quite a bit. But I can understand where King would, despite all that research that Soul did, I can understand where King would still be looking around and going, this isn't working. Um, and so he had some criticism of capitalism, but again, he opposed authoritarianism. And so he, what, he didn't have this picture of Marxism and socialism that a lot of people want to say he has today when they're saying, no, the real legacy of King was the fact that he was a Marxist. One, no, he wasn't. And two, his criticism of capitalism had to do with what he was seeing economically in the black community, and he was ardently opposed to authoritarianism. Um, so anyway, so those are that's kind of what I think is important to acknowledge as the legacy of Martin Luther King and you know, not making the mistake of saying that he is just this one thing you know that I like about him and ignoring the stuff about him I don't like. And for other people that are really big fans of um, redistribution of wealth, you know, there is a push, again, in academia is usually where this stuff starts, to say that his legacy was actually socialism and, and his criticism of capitalism um, and that other civil rights stuff about ignoring color. We're going we're, we're gonna to ignore all that. Um, I, so it's not doing him justice to focus on either of those things. He was just a, he's just a dude, just like anyone else. He's a complex person. And so... Kind of the thing I was kicking around in my mind, you know, we'll see if I'm able to articulate this in a way that doesn't sound awful, but is why what I think we can learn from that is that we shouldn't attach principles to people. And, and what I mean by that is that there are certainly people that we could say, this person articulates this idea or principle really well, or this person embodies this idea or principle really well. But if we start saying that that person's definition of that principle is the thing we're going to adhere to, or that's going to be the lens with which we view it, then we open ourselves up to saying that that principle is now open to the same criticisms that a flawed human being could have. I mean, the right does this with principles laid forth by the founders of our country. And in doing so, then people say, well, Thomas Jefferson said all that great stuff, but he had slaves, so therefore liberty is actually a bad idea and the constitution is invalid because the the framers had, you know, slaves or some of them did. And so if you attach a principle and say that it only exists within the realm of how this one person articulated it, then you open yourself up to those criticisms. Now, that's why I think the marketplace of ideas is so important and focusing on what individuals say is so important is you would you 
address ideas and not people, right? Like that's that famous quote of stupid, smart people talk about ideas, uh, average people talk about events, and stupid people talk about people, uh, something like that. I think it's an Eleanor Roosevelt quote. She obviously said it a lot better. But the point is, is that there is a temptation for those who want to criticize an idea to, if it's really, really well attached to a person, to criticize that person and say that invalidates it. And so I think that it, both sides, whether you're on the left or on the right, to say that Martin Luther King embodies equality does a disservice to his legacy because he did have other ideas. You can agree or disagree. I disagree with redistribution of wealth. But to say that he was just his I have a dream speech is making a caricature out of him and cherry picking him. And so I think on Martin Luther King Day, we should honor the man, Martin Luther King, not just some cherry picked halcyon vision of him, whether you like the civil rights stuff or whether you like the stuff where he was uh, critical of capitalism. I think you have to accept all of it um, just at face value. You know, again, we can't tether our idea of principles to people. So I was thinking about like, you know, conservatives do that with Reagan or maybe William F. Buckley, something like that. Progressives do it with FDR. Feminists might do it with someone like Gloria Steinem. And the idea of equality, we do that with Martin Luther King or um, peace, peaceful protest with Gandhi. Those are all transcendent ideas. And so I think we always have to be careful to say these people might be torchbearers for this idea, right? Like just like the founders, they laid out all men are created equal, but America didn't live up to that. And then Abraham or Frederick Douglass said those things, right? Frederick Douglass was a torchbearer for those ideas. He said, look, we're not living up to this. All men are created equal. Abraham Lincoln rearticulated it in the Gettysburg Address. All men are created equal. We're not living up to it. Martin Luther King, then he's a torchbearer for that idea. Look, we're all equal. We need to have a, a society where we're all treated equally. Those are people who are torchbearers. And so I think we have to acknowledge them as such and be willing to say, look, I'm going to follow principles. And whatever people are on board with those principles, yes, if you're against those principles, whatever, you're, we're not going to hang. But regardless, to make that the person the definer of those principles is a mistake. If you watch my video where I talked about why I'm not a Republican, I said, after I realized, like, look, I don't think I'm on the left anymore, but I wasn't, like, drawn over there by the right, by Republicans, and what I started to do was think about what are the principles that I stand for, what are the things that I believe in, what's important to me, and then I'm just going to go with whoever best supports those or has policies that adhere to those principles and focus on the person and not that. So I think with Martin Luther King, I think we need to acknowledge, look, he had a lot of ideas, and one of them was probably one of the most well-articulated definitions of equality ever spoken, at least in recent centuries. And, but at the same time, say, he was just a dude, he was a torchbearer for this idea, and let's honor his legacy by honoring all of his ideas, using it as a springboard to talk about what does equality actually look like, what was his vision actually, and not say, well, if we can't say Martin Luther King would have agreed with X, then it can't be equal. Just like there are people who say the same thing about like Adam Smith with economics or Thomas Jefferson with ideas about liberty or whatever. Um, we have to adhere to the principles and not the people. Um, so anyway, I, I don't know if I articulated that well, but my point is, is that I think I made a mistake and a lot of people do this of making a caricature out of MLK and cherry picking his ideas. And so tomorrow, I think we want to, we want to honor him as a person and not and the as a robust body of ideas and not just cherry pick what we like about him, whether it's criticism of capitalism or 
really well-spoken arguments for equality, um, but honor him as a person. And then in our personal lives, I think the other takeaway is, whether it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day or not, take a step back and say, what principles do I believe in? And do I believe in something because it's tethered to a person, or do I believe it because I just think it's true? Um, anyway, so I kind of want to close out there, but what I'll do is I want to kind of, honestly, I want to read the Gettysburg Address, because it's really short, and because I think it informs Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, and then we'll read it, the I Have a Dream speech, and then we'll be done. Um, so here's the Gettysburg Address. This is Abraham Lincoln. This is in uh, 1863, November 19th, 1863. I should know that uh, because I put that on my license plate. Anyway, probably shouldn't have said that. Whatever. Okay. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who, who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggle here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, not nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for the us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work for which they have fought and have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we can take increased devotion to that cause for which they have gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government for the people, by the people, or the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Abraham Lincoln, November 19th, 1863. So the reason I read that is because one, Martin Luther King references it in his I Have a Dream speech, and that has to inform how we think about his legacy and what he did. Because again, I think Abraham Lincoln was a torchbearer for that idea of equality and fighting the evils of slavery and of racism really in the United States and saying, just like Frederick Douglass said, we're not living up to these ideas put forth in the Constitution. And again, those ideas didn't originate with the Constitution. The idea of men being equal and having value, you know, outside of what the government does or doesn't say. Those ideas existed before the framers. And so these are torchbearers for these ideas. And Martin Luther King's looking around 100 years after the Gettysburg Address and saying, have we seen a new birth of freedom? Like this government of, of the people, for the people, by the people, like what is that all about? He's, he's looking at Jim Crow and saying, no, we, we haven't succeeded in that vision put forth. So this is what he says in his I Have a Dream speech. Um, he says, I'm happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. So this was a march on Washington, D.C. It's where he gave this. And again, this is kind of the culmination of the Civil Rights Movement leading up to the, the Civil Rights Act being passed in 64. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came forth 
as a great beacon of light, of hope, to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note, insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring the sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in a great vault of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will be given us upon demand, the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or taking the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is time to make real promises of democracy. This is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. The sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until there is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro will needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. And there will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwind of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But there is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to justify or let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow the creative protest to de degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people, for many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny, and they have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. and As we walk, we must, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? 
We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells, and some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi, go back to Alabama, go back to South Carolina, go back to Georgia, go back to Louisiana, go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow the situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you, my friends. And even, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live to the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope, and this is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out on the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that, what we, will be, knowing that we will be free one day. And this will be the day. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning. My country, tis of thee. Sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightened Alleghenies of Pennsylvania, let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado, let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that. Let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, 
when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet and every state and every city, we will be able to speed up to that day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. So that was King's I Have a Dream speech. And that speech, again, to me, is so inspiring and it embodies what I'm saying of where he was a torchbearer for these ideas where Martin Luther King, just like Frederick Douglass, just like Abraham Lincoln, and like the founders of this country were torchbearers for ideas of liberty, of freedom, of equality, of opportunity. And each time, each successive torchbearer would look and say, how are we doing at this? Frederick Douglass said, we're not living up to this. Abraham Lincoln said, we weren't living up to this. And there's the Emancipation Proclamation. And then the horrors of Jim Crow come in. And Martin Luther King and others say, we're not living up to this. So these are torchbearers for these ideas. And so we want to take the principles that they stood for and adhere to these principles, but not say that their principle is or isn't as good as how much we like all of the ideas a person puts forth. And so if you're a person who only cares, wants to honor Martin Luther King for this, these exact ideas, then you're not giving him his due and you're not treating him like the individual he was and saying, look, he believed this stuff and he also had visions later in his life of what that looked like. And so whether you're on the left or the right, he's saying that he, all of this is rooted in biblical ideas. And so Martin Luther King was a Christian. He wanted people to pray together. So if you don't want America to be an overtly Christian nation or some type of theocracy, then that's not your vision of equality. That was his vision of equality. If you don't support redistribution of wealth, which I don't, then that vision isn't your vision. So that's why you don't want to tie a principle to a person. Martin Luther King articulated some of the best words of, we're not succeeding at this, but we need to be. Ever spoken, I think. But those ideas of equality, those ideas of liberty, those ideas of opportunity, those ideas of just common human brotherhood transcend Martin Luther King. And so tomorrow or any other day when we're talking about people who are these torchbearers for these great transcendent values, I think we have to do two things. One is to honor the people as people and not just cherry pick the parts that we like. You know, say, look, we're going to give the devil his due. Here is what they stood for. Here's what I agree with. Here's what I don't agree with. But then also use those as good self-checks of, you know, am I a person who forms my beliefs around another person or do I adhere to principles regardless of who puts those principles forth? Um, so that's kind of my challenge to you guys. Again, and for those, those people who want to say Martin Luther King was just a straight up Marxist and he hated capitalism and he wanted to destroy America. Yeah, he had some redistributionist ideas, but he also rooted everything in biblical values and in the actual words of the American founders, whether it's the Emancipation Proclamation or the Constitution itself. So you have to take the whole package deal, not, not just cherry pick. Um, anyway, so that's, that's kind of my thoughts on Martin Luther King. Uh, I'm glad that I read through it a second time because the first time it's, it's hard to not get emotional. You know, I don't just, I don't just say that like that. I can't imagine being in that moment of again, seeing churches bombed and, people being, you know, harassed because of the color of their skin. And, and it is easy. You know, we forget this was like 60 years ago. You know, that it wasn't that long ago that these horrible things were happening. The 20th century had some of the worst atrocities of all of mankind. I mean, 
whether it was Jim Crow here or the Holocaust in Germany or Stalin's rule in the Soviet Union or Mao's Great Leap Forward, the 20th century is rife with horrors and we forget that it really wasn't that long ago. Um, and it's easy to forget that. And so I, for me to try and go back and, and just think of, I can't imagine what he was talking about there. I think it's important. Um, it's important for us to do. And also to acknowledge, look at how far we've come from that. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that I think that all of his dreams have come true for everyone. I think they have for some, maybe not for others. Um, but I will say that we've made tremendous progress as a country, and I am proud of that. Uh, I think we still have progress to make, but it's definitely not as bad as a lot of people want to say it is. And I think that he would probably be proud of where we are today. Uh, maybe not with the redistribution of stuff. Maybe he'd be campaigning with Andrew Yang, big fan of UBI, who knows. Um, but it doesn't really matter because equality is not something that's defined by Martin Luther King, even if he articulated the definition really well. Um, it's a transcendent value, and we also have to remember that as well. Okay, that's it. Uh, who I, I don't know how that went, to be honest with you. I'm like, man, I'm, I know this is going to be one of those, like, all oh, white, white privilege dude up there reading the I Have a Dream speech like he knows. Um, so whatever criticisms are going to come no matter what you do. Uh, all right, so that's it. Probably went pretty long tonight. I don't know how long this was. Next week, we're going to be talking about ideas, language. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening. There's some stuff in the UK where there's actually now paid thought police going to be uh, on campus, uh, at least one school in the UK. So that's a concern. So we're going to be talking a lot about speech and ideas next week and uh, probably give you some updates on you know the impeachment, all of that stuff, see if the divide in the Democratic Party continues to spill out in the open or if they uh, make nice, at least for the time being. Um, anyway, so that's it. Thanks for watching. Uh, please like, share, subscribe. This is the kind of stuff that you like. Uh, my YouTube channel is at Return to Reason. Uh, my, po my podcast is also on Spotify. I'll upload this to Spotify. Same thing, Return to Reason. You can follow me on Twitter. That's at My Mundane Mind. And again, if you think I misrepresented anything, if you think that anything was inaccurate, or if I said something that you just thought was wrong, like, please let me know. I really try to be as authentic as possible. That's why, like I said, I changed all of what I was going to do for Martin Luther King Day because, you know, I think that Michael Harriet had a point um, in his article. So if you think that I did anything here that was wrong or you disagree with, let me know. I'm totally open to criticisms. Uh, dr drop me a message or uh, say something in the comments. But anyway, I appreciate you watching. I hope you have a great night. And uh, go Chiefs. See you next week.